I truly believe that this world is fixing to experience something so devastating, and that is the revealing that there are fallen angels and that they've been here with us all the time. Ladies and gentlemen, And now, ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. What is going on, my friends? This is Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com, with another edition of BOA Audio Season 5. It is quite a weekend here at BOA HQ. It is the finale of Lost this weekend. Very excited about that, so... Folks who are fans of both The Lost Cast and BOA Audio Season 5 are in for a big treat. First of all, a massive dose of audio this weekend here with this episode as well as one of the final editions of The Lost Cast. And then next week we've got something really cool planned, but I don't want to talk too much about it right now, so stay tuned to the end of the show. And as I noted, if you are a fan of The Lost Cast, you are going to be very excited. Now, let's move on to this week's edition of the program. It is an epic conversation with biblical prophecy scholar Dr. Joy Pugh. Dr. Joy is going to reveal how her research has uncovered the true identity of the Antichrist and how his arrival is the result of a millennia-long plan put into action by nefarious forces around the world. Wrap your mind around that. Perfect conversation here for the Lost Weekend at BOA. I can't even begin really to try and recap this interview. I sat down and sort of put together a slight list of hot topics you're going to be hearing about from Dr. Joy. Let me run through those real quick. We're going to start at, of course, the beginning with the book of Genesis and what Dr. Joy thinks really happened in the Garden of Eden. We'll cover the Shroud of Turn and how it might be used to clone Jesus, why a clone is the Antichrist's ideal vessel, who Dr. Joy believes the Antichrist to be, what he looks like and why. 2012, Harp, Fallen Angels, and a False UFO Invasion, the Murder of Princess Diana, the Rapture, and how the end times, coming soon, will all play out. Mind-blowing stuff right there. I can't wait to unleash it on the BOA Audio listeners. And to her credit, Dr. Joy Pugh is passionate about this stuff. I realized that pretty much a half hour into the interview because she has so much to say. I try to get out of her way for the bulk of the conversation because there are just tons of little details and side tangents involved in the big tent poles of her theory. And that's kind of what I wanted to go for here because, hey, this thing starts in the Garden of Eden, and ends at the Apocalypse. I mean, that's a lot of stuff to cover, so I want to get the beginning and the end in there and try and let you fill in the middle for yourself. And I know some folks are sitting there rolling their eyes at the content of this week's edition of the program. Chances are some of them aren't even going to listen to the show because they don't want to get into the whole religious aspect of things. I hear your voices, my friends. I am certainly not a huge biblical prophecy fan myself, 
but I want to give Dr. Joy the chance to lay her theory out there for us. And at the end, I do throw a series of pretty skeptical questions at her regarding the overall thesis that she's presenting, because, you know, I'm just not really on board with biblical prophecy, although I'll be honest with you, it scares the shit out of me. That's why I really enjoy this conversation with Dr. Joy Pugh as well, because if what she's saying is true, it is terrifying stuff, and you gotta love that. With all that said, strap yourself in, folks, for a wild ride. Dr. Joy Pugh is about to take us on a journey from mankind's beginning to its end in what I think is the perfect edition of BOA Audio here for the Lost Weekend. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Dr. Joy Pugh, allow me to provide you with a little background on her. Dr. Joy Pugh's background involves working as a researcher, counselor, mental retardation professional, human services director, and consultant. Her love for prophecy began at six years of age after having an unusual and prophetic dream about the end of time. Most importantly, for over 30 years now, Dr. Pugh has been involved in researching biblical prophecy. She consults with people from around the world on various issues and current events involving science and religion. She also serves as a consultant in education with MUFON regarding the spiritual and religious aspects of paranormal and UFO experiences. Her website is drjoy.com, all one word, pretty simple, drjoy.com, D-R-J-O-Y-E.com. Don't forget the E, D-R-J-O-Y-E.com. Check it out for more information on Dr. Joy's research into biblical prophecy and as a supplement here to this week's edition of the program. With everything that has to be said, already said, let's get down to business, my friends, and rock and roll. This interview was recorded on May 6th, 2010. Dr. Joy Pugh talking about biblical prophecy and the end times on BOA Audio Season 5. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Banal of America Audio. We have a very thought-provoking conversation on tap for you here this week. I am very excited about it. Our guest is Dr. Joy Pugh. She is the author of the book, Eden, The Knowledge of Good and Evil 666, and she has been investigating, oh, I don't even know where to begin. She's been sort of tracing the history of mankind, really, from the Garden of Eden all the way up into what may unfold in 2012 and 2018, and she believes that we are... Uh, you know, under the auspices of a satanic conspiracy. I think that's the best way to put it. And she's going to be talking about her research with us here this week. I really enjoyed the book. I thought it was chilling at times, troubling, certainly, and definitely, as I said, thought-provoking stuff. So I'm very excited to have her here on the program. Certainly an area we have not delved into yet on the program, but I found the material so interesting that I was really looking forward to having her on the show, and I knew we had to bring her on. BOA Audio to talk about her research. Dr. Joy, welcome to the program. Thank you, Tim. Let's start with the basics. How did you get mixed up in all this, Joy? <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, well, what, what led it, you to this, this research? Well, it began really as a child. I had a, uh unusually troubling dream that I felt was uh, a little more than what a six-year-old mind could comprehend. And immediately after having that dream, I knew that I had actually seen something that I felt was given to me to know about. And it was, it was troubling because what I saw... And what I've been able to research about what I saw was something in regard to the end of time and what this world would look like at the very last 
days. And so when I began approaching Sunday school teachers at the age of six going, explain this to me, what is this, you know, what, what, what would it mean if everybody dies and what would it mean if, if the world looks like this? And of course they were just blown away that, you know, a child would be asking those types of questions when most of the time all the movies things that you could see as a child in those days was something with, you know, Walt Disney or Lassie or something of that nature. And they were like, where did you get this? Where did you come up with this? And it was very troubling to me because when I would try to find the answers and they couldn't answer, and at the same time, I think it, as adults, they were a little bit skeptical as to really tell me that, yes, there, there is a time that's, you know, prophesied in the Bible that does speak a lot about what you're saying. And so throughout my lifetime, I began to try to find books and things that would answer these questions. And one of the first ones that I came across was the late great planet Earth that Hal Lindsey did. Mm-hmm. And I begged my mother. We were in a, a little uh, pharmacy uh, in a little town where I grew up, and I saw it on the little, just a little spin rack. And I just begged my mother. I was like, please. And she was like, well, you, you know, that's a little advanced. What are you wanting to read something like that? And I was just, I was like, please, my, you know, mother, please. And so finally she gave in and bought the book. And, and of course, I went home and just could not put it down because it, it was the first time in my life that I felt like it was telling me about something that I had seen in this dream. And uh, immediately I began reading the book of Revelation uh, in the Bible. And, of course, I grew up in church, and so I was always in church. But, unfortunately, church sometimes, they, they talk about a lot of different things, but they don't really go into detail about what may happen in the future. And I don't know whether over the course of history people have tried to shy away from that because people have said, well, if you try to say this is going to happen tomorrow and that it doesn't happen, then that makes you look bad or whatever. Yeah. So so preachers have, I think, over time gotten a little more leery to bring it up for fear that they would be ridiculed by it. And unfortunately, you know, if, you, if you're going to believe what the Bible says, then that's kind of the wrong thing to do because you need to be showing that certain signs are following the path of what was told to us thousands of years ago that might happen. And so after devouring both of those uh, books, the book of Revelation and, of course, Hal Lindsey's book, I I began to have a little bit more understanding. And then what happened was when I would start asking the questions to, you know, preachers and people that I thought might be skilled in understanding that, they would tell me, well, those things are not yet for us to know about, or those things are symbols that we don't know what it meant. Mm -hmm. And and I was given uh, kind of an off, just leave it alone, don't worry about it, you're a child, take your, you know, enjoy your life, grow up, don't think about things like that. But I never could do that. And it was only the reason was because of what I had seen. I knew that it was significant, and it it did not make sense to me, but yet I could put it into pieces of what I was reading and being able to, you know, conceptualize what the dream was all about. Then when I would read read those things, and I could see little different pieces of the puzzle being brought together. So I went on through college and um, and really studied things that I thought would help me find the answers, really not ever thinking that I would be sharing what I was finding to answer questions for myself with the public in general, never thinking I would write a book or never thinking I yeah. would be on a radio show or whatever. And so I compiled 
all these things together through the course of going through my undergraduate and my graduate school and then, of course, getting my doctorate, I began putting, like, the pieces of the puzzle together because I found that where science and religion have tried to separate themselves, and unfortunately, I think that there was a plan behind that to keep us so separated that you can't see the forest for the trees, Mm -hmm. and if you get so specialized, you can't look, you know, objectively at at the whole. And I know one day I was telling someone that I had, as a woman growing up in the South, we weren't really taught that you could ever be a preacher. And of course, that's what I would have wanted to have been, would have been a preacher. And so my work was more for myself instead of to share with anyone. And and I said, you know, I would have liked to have really maybe studied uh, in, a, in a seminary and those kinds of things to have been a pastor. And, and it was funny, uh, this man looked at me and he said, but do you understand that if you had done that, that you would have been so engrossed in a specific doctrine that you would have been just like you said. You could not have seen the forest for the trees. And he was so correct about that, but I had never had that revelation that that may be why God intended to carry me through a lot of topics and a lot of study so that I could broadly look at things objectively and at the same time put the pieces together because what I think I have done in Eden is to show you that science and religion are very connected and that if you look at the whole picture, then it will begin to make sense. But unless you've got the foundation of how we began, you can't even begin to put the pieces together as to how history has uh, manifested itself in such strange ways and how it will all lead back to a time that's considered an end time that will take us back to the beginning. And the thought of that, when I, when I was able to put all this together and be able to use science and religion to prove it, then it was almost like doing a, um, a hypothesis of something and saying, okay, here is the hypothesis. This is why we were created. This is where we're at, uh, human being-wise, uh, mankind-wise, and these are the people that are involved in the game. We've got we've got a creator God, and we've got a little God that decided he wanted to be God that has been playing major roles in our lives, and that what the choices are and the choices we make will determine where we spend a type of eternity. Because so long, people would say, well, you know, if, um, you know, we, we were just chaotically started here and, and, you know, there's no thing as life after death and people just die. They're just like animals. It's just over with. But the more I did the research and all this, I began to see that there was very specific answers to these questions. And so I began to lay down the pattern of understanding what happened in Eden, what happened being sent out of Eden, why did that occur, and then how did we manifest and become a society of human beings that we are today. And how could it be that the Bible also says that there's going to be an end time, and how could that come about? How can that happen with us as human beings? And I think that that Eden... Uh, the research that I did brings all that into perspective, Tim. I think so, too. I think it's really uh, a compelling book, as I said, and it's epic. Like I like I uh, noted here at the beginning of the interview, I mean, you start from the beginning and you take us to the end. So uh, there's so much to talk about here <laughs> in this conversation. Let's, I guess, start in the beginning, you know, the as the title of the book is Eden. What went on there 
according to your research, that sort of kicked off this whole conspiracy, if you will. Is conspiracy the proper word, I guess? Is that all right with you? Well, I, I think that it is. I guess in a sense that that mankind has been we've been played with. I guess is well, I guess the word I, I can only think of. And and some things are deceptive. There's things that are hidden. There's things that are right under our nose, but we have not been taught to understand that. So I guess in reality, it has been kind of a conspiracy, and unfortunately, it's a true conspiracy. <laughs> it's not like a false conspiracy. So you know, when I when I sat down to uh, think about how to do my research. I, my first book was Antichrist, the Cloned Image of Jesus Christ. And I did the research on that in regard to trying to understand end times. And what I kept finding when I, when I did the research for that book, that there was a similarity of end times to the very beginning. I mean, you have this, this same little words keep coming up, like, uh, for example, the tree of life and the tree of good and evil and Satan and the whore of Babylon, and something happening strangely with Eve, and the fact that there was some mixing going on, yeah. and you know, and then in the end times, it's talking about God does not like that mixing; He's going to separate the wheat from the tares. I mean, there was there was key little words that just kept popping up and doing that end times research. So that forced me to try to understand if God was the Creator. And he specifically had first decided to put us in the Garden of Eden. Why didn't he just keep us there? Why Why did we end up in a state of supposed failure when we were actually created to have been really perfect? Because in the beginning, it tells us that everything God made, that it was good. Yeah. There's never a mention that, oh, by the way, God made something and this was bad. It, it specifically says in Genesis, that what he made was good. And so I'm thinking, okay, if he did that, why did we have to go into the Garden of Eden, then lose paradise, then have to go through what I think has been a trial run of making decision to, as to whether we want to go back into paradise or if we want to stay out of it. But the process, you couldn't really, I could not totally come to terms that I had gotten everything uh, in my own mind about end times until I went back and looked at the beginning. Yeah. And then that laid the foundation to start doing the major research for Eden. And, and several people have laughed because they say, well, you know, you say Eden, the knowledge of good and evil, 666. And, and of course, when people would first look at that title, it was like, what? Does, how does that make, that make sense? And, <laughs> but, <laughs> but in reality, the title in itself explains the whole book because, like you said, it is a, a beginning all the way to the end. And unless you know the beginning, you cannot see the end. And, of course, once I began to think about some of the words that Jesus had said in the Bible, that if you didn't know the beginning, you wouldn't understand the end. And so, in essence, what that is true because there's so much that happened in Eden that we have taken for granted because we have listened to little stories growing up about what, seemed to be two people that God created, and he put them in this great little garden, and he said, you know, children, you know, I, I want you to be able to eat of the trees here, and everything's provided, and uh, just don't, like, mess with this tree that's got this fruit, because if you do, when you eat, you're going to die. Yeah. 
And so we all grew up thinking, okay, well, there's little Adam and Eve, and they're running around in the garden. They, of course, they're naked, and and they're just having this grand, glorious time. And they they come, or Eve comes upon the tree, and she sees this little apple hanging there, and she says, "Oh, that kind of looks pretty nice, but you know, I don't think I'm supposed to eat of that." And so she decides, well, it looks pretty good. And all of a sudden, this little snake shows up, and he says, hey, come on, Eve, you know, don't worry about this. Just take a bite. And so she takes the bite, and then she gathers a bunch of apples and runs back to a cave or wherever (laughs) that uh, Adam was supposed to be at, and she feeds him some. And we figure that, you know, in the story that God shows up, and he's really disappointed in what we've done. And he says, by gosh, you know, this can't continue, so you've just got to be put out of Eden. You didn't do what I said. And that's, that was kind of the basics of what we were taught in Sunday school and church and, and, and how we've heard the story. Unfortunately, it's a great broad view for someone who may be six or seven, eight years old and not have to go into details because you can see people, you know, the, the milk before you give them the meat to understand that. But the problem is that we are living in, in end times, and as adults, we have not taken in anything but milk. We haven't eaten of the meat of what you know Eden in the book of Genesis is telling us went on there. And and I think it's been kept hidden and not brought up, or maybe maybe people just didn't understand it. Uh, you know, I don't want to say that everybody had a hidden agenda, but I do believe there was a hidden agenda by some. But if you didn't take the words of, of what it was being taught to you, in Genesis, then you could get lost in not understanding what the times we are living in and maybe uh, lead you astray into things that um, might seem to have answers um, and, and they were deceptive answers. So going through the first part of, of my book, Eden, I, I really wanted to establish the fact that there apparently was a little more that happened in Genesis. And when I sat down to really read the book of Genesis, there were several things that came to mind that I had not paid attention to specifically. Okay. And that was that in Genesis 2, after God uh, had taken a rib from Adam, that he makes Eve. And I had never paid attention that God had married them. But he says he married them, and a man was going to leave his mother and this kind of thing that, you know, you would never think about uh, in reality of, of going back and thinking about the stories of what was told to us uh, as children. Mm-hmm. But the fact that God married them and they became one flesh, they were actually one flesh because Eve had been taken out of Adam. But I've heard people say, well, there's a possibility they were cloned. Well, they cannot be cloned because if they were cloned, there would have been a double Adam. And we know that was not the case, that there was Adam and that there was Eve. So there was some uh, creativity involved in making Eve, not only with Adam being in in the image of God, but that Eve was also uh, designed a certain way, even though it was from the rib, but it was not like a, a clone. But the fact was that after they seemed to be running around naked, and no problem, their mind seems to be good, everything seems to be great, until chapter 3, when this serpent shows up. And I had, you know, I, I never paid attention that the word serpent did not say snake. And after I started thinking about this, you know, on in Revelation, it talks about the, the serpent, the great dragon, the one that was there in, in the beginning, 
um, the deceiver, the liar, the whole nine yards, I'm like, okay, apparently this is not like a snake that you and I would encounter on the ground somewhere. And, of course, living in South Georgia, I've encountered a lot of snakes. Oh, yeah. And, and, you know, if one decided to talk to you, I think you would exit stage left. But it was interesting to me that, that Eve stayed there and she had a little conversation with the guy. Mm-hmm. So it, it appeared to me that uh, there was a little more to the serpent than what had been uh, maybe taught as just being a mere snake. Yeah. Because when you look at serpent, then you've got to say this is a very insightful being. And I think back about, you know, if you just take, for example, if you take a lizard and you notice how a lizard can change colors, how it can mingle and mix and change its body style and blend into the, um, you know, to uh, a, a tree or a bush or wherever it's at, you can see that it could be very deceptive. And I can understand the deceptiveness of what they were trying to say, this, you know, that was going on there. But I found that there was, you know, a couple of words that seemed to be, uh, a little bit strange, and that led me to see that there's a possibility that instead of it being an apple, which we know it doesn't say an apple, it says a fruit. Yeah. But we've always thought it was an apple because we were we've seen that over and over and over again. Ethan in there with a, a big apple, but it wasn't. It was the fruit, and the and the fact of the matter was that it appeared to me that. There was something that happened with the serpent that was very, very, very bad. And if it had been that it was nothing more than an apple and Eve ate of it, then the curse that God comes along a little bit later there in Genesis and throws upon this serpent and Eve does not make sense. And I've said time and time again to different people that I've discussed this with, if Adam and Eve had eaten an apple or grapes. I mean, I've heard it say it was grapes. I've heard people say it was a pear, it was a pomegranate, whatever. If it had been that, Mosaic law was established an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. I mean, this was something that was handed down, you know, by God. If And he and, and the Bible says he's the same today as he was yesterday and he will be in the future. If it had been something you ate, why would it have been if it was just a piece of fruit why would not Adam and Eve have hidden their mouth? Why did they run off and hide their private parts from God? And why was it that I am naked? That that would not make sense. And, and the example I've used many times is that when you were a child and your mother made cookies and she said, you know, keep your hand out of those cookies, that cookie jar until after supper. And I better not catch you in that cookie jar. If she came walking in the room and you had just shoved one of those cookies in your mouth, you would have put your hands over your mouth. Yeah. To hide your sin, it would have been over your mouth. It would have not have, I would not have run into the bathroom and sewed a fig leaf together to put over my private parts because I had just <laughs> ate a chocolate chip cookie. So those kinds of things, Tim, started saying, I have got to go back as an individual, as a researcher, as an educator, as someone who is truly wanting to know the truth for myself, because this this was important for me to know, not only to share with you or to the world, but for myself to know, what does all this mean? Because 
I'm now finding little nuggets that I call little golden nuggets and red flags that make the whole story a little bit more interesting, but yet explains a lot as to why the whore of Babylon is so bad in Revelation and why purity and not mixing are so important at the end of time, as well as why the tree of life is in paradise, but the tree of good and evil is no longer mentioned. So after I looked at this, and I really tried to, to put every option out there that it could possibly be that this was a symbol, that, you know, you had gained knowledge. But if you'd gained knowledge, you know, even if you gained knowledge, you would not have been running around wanting to say, Fig, fig leaves together because the knowledge, it had to be something sexual about that. Yeah. You had to get sexual knowledge. And if man and woman were so naive, then I can't see how that would have changed anything. Now, and looking at what they could have eaten, it could have been something that they did actually eat that actually caused the hormones in the body to become active, which would allow a sexual encounter. There's all kinds of possibilities, but the fact remains is that something occurred with that serpent that caused Adam and Eve to feel something sexually had occurred because it, before, in Chapter 2, they were naked and they were totally unashamed. Yeah. So when the serpent, like I say, eats with Eve, or actually Eve eats with a serpent. Then she turns around and gives immediately to Adam. And that was something else I had not paid attention to, Tim, that really Adam was standing there the whole time. I had always heard the stories that she got the apple and went back and gave him some. Yeah. But he was right there with her. And the Bible specifically says that. And I guess I had just not paid attention to that. But when I saw that, then it made sense as to why uh, even the Bible says Eve was in the transgression. But yet, Adam had to be punished as well. And so, if you really look on down in Genesis chapter 3, when God shows up, he's going to curse the serpent. And he says, I will put enmity, which is a positive hatred between you, Satan, and the woman, between your seed, Satan, and her seed, Eve, and it shall bruise thy head, Satan, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Well, you know, we've always said that the reason that, that Jesus was crucified and had to go through what he did was in regard to that curse, you know, in regard to the woman's seed. And people are like, oh, well, there's a possibility of this and that and whatever. But if you stop and look at it, God is absolutely bringing about a curse on this serpent, and he's saying the serpent's seed. Mm -hmm. And the only thing the Bible talks about in seed when they talk about Eve's seed, it had to be a production of a being yeah. or a baby. You, you can't, you can't, you know, <laughs> the serpent had to have a child in this. Mm -hmm. Because if he didn't, why did, why did this happen the way that it did? So I looked at really chapter 16, very, you know, very straightforward. Because it appeared to me that a sex act had been committed with Satan, and that he, and really God had had no problem with Adam and Eve having sex. He had married them.
But why would he condemn Eve now in childbearing if she had not done something sexually wrong? So at that point, I began to see that there had occurred a mixing. And when I looked at a little bit, bit further into when when Cain shows up, that the the word that they use for his name is acquired. I mean, Cain actually means acquired. And I'm like, okay. So it doesn't really say that that's Adam's son. You go further on in and look at Adam's lineage, Cain is not even mentioned in Adam's lineage when you go and look at his son Seth. And those kinds of things were really, really real red flags. And why was it that Abel, when he was born, it didn't say that there was a conception again, but he comes out and Abel actually, the word means breath, which we know a living soul is what God blew into Adam, this living breath. So that tells you that there was a difference between those two children. Yes. And so I I began to do a little bit of research because I'm thinking, okay, if Adam and Eve had had, if, if Eve had had sexual relationship with a serpent, then could she have had a child with Adam as well at the same time? In other words, could they have been a type of twin yeah. when they were born? Because the Bible doesn't say there was two conceptions there. And sure enough, I found in the medical records that there is cases where children are born by a woman who has had sex with two men within hours and even up to a day apart, that those children could be born and they would have the same mother, but they would not have the same father. Whoa. And and, and that was like that was like the real big flag because now I'm like, okay, now this is starting to make some really interesting uh, uh, right way of understanding this. And when... Um, I looked at, again, that if the DNA of Adam and Eve was was really good, how was it that in chapter 6 we get into the sons of God having come upon the daughters of man and they produce giants? I'm like, giants. You know, how, how could you, if you had perfect DNA, and you look at like, you know, the experiments we did in, in, in biology with like with Mendel's peas, you can't, if, if the DNA was perfect, you would always have a, a replication that would be a perfect DNA. There would be no difference in what you were, you know, producing. You've got to have some recessive genes and you've got to have dominant genes and you've got to do all, all these kind of weird things. But if the DNA was perfect, then you could have never gotten a giant out of Adam and Eve. So when I looked back, I thought, okay, there was a little bit something strange about Cain in the fact that, you know, he came against uh, what the teaching was to bring your first fruits to God. Okay, Adam and Eve already knew that God meant business, and I'm sure as parents they were like, okay, boys, you know, we were in paradise at one time, and we didn't do what the big God told us to do, and... If you don't do what he says do, you're going to be punished because of it. And if you were taught that and you knew that and your parents told you that, then I could see you could be rebellious. But again, if you think about rebellious as a type of recessive where people have tried to say psychologically that you end up with people who become um, 
this, that, and other sociopaths or whatever, mm-hmm. they typically have a change in brain chemicals. Something is maybe producing that. But if, again, if that DNA was perfect, there should not have been that. So right there, you see his name is acquired. Uh, Eve says when she, you know, when he's born that she's gotten him from the Lord. We know that Adam was not the Lord. And then he gets mad because Abel takes his first fruits to God according to the law that was established there after the Garden of Eden. So he decides, well, you know, I'm going to get rid of you, Abel. I'm going to kill you. Okay, all of a sudden we've got somebody killing someone. Well, when you go back and look at the book of Revelation, you see that God says that old serpent from the very beginning was a liar and he was a murderer. And you're like, well, who was the first murderer? Cain. Yeah. So you can't say that there was not something there that was doing something. And we know that Cain, of course, went off into a land on his own and that he married and he had children. And it's interesting that the book of Genesis does not really give us how long they lived or anything like that, but it does give us the names of the people that, you know, he produced in the lineage that went all the way, uh, I guess, up until the time of of Noah's flood. And then we also get the understanding that uh, years later, apparently Adam and Eve had a child named Seth. And that lineage is all broken down perfectly. It tells you exactly the length of time these people lived and um, every little thing about, you know, who they produced and how long they lived and whatever, all the way up to Noah. But you find in that lineage that it never mentions Cain. Well, some people will say, well, it doesn't mention Abel. But according to any historical record that was kept, you know, Hebrews, Israelites, that kind of thing, they always put their uh, oldest child first, and he was the first fruits and was supposed to be given to God and that kind of thing. Yeah. And he should have been listed because he had a lineage. I mean, he had people born from him. We know that Abel didn't. He did not have a lineage, so therefore he's not mentioned. And that's the reason he's not mentioned. But I find it strange that it mentions everybody all the way from Seth, and it just just, just jumps from Seth to Adam. It doesn't mention anything about Cain. It's like two different total entities. So when we find these daughters of men having sexual relationships with supposedly the sons of God, and that they produced these giants, and that these giants were taken over the earth, and that's what really God had a major problem with. I, you know, he was saying everything was just going terrible, and I can't put up with this anymore. I'm just going to wipe man and and really beast off the face of the earth because we know with the the flood we would not have lost anything that was in the water, you know, the fish or the whatever. Yeah. We would have lost only the birds and the beast and the humans. Mm-hmm. And so that's what led me to really start seeing that there was two lineages. There was this Cain lineage and there was this Seth lineage. And apparently this Cain lineage had gotten some really great information to be able to do some really outstanding things like build cities and uh, work and all these sciences. And I'm like, "How how did they learn this? But if they were of the serpent, which was that old dragon and, and Satan, we have to look at when God created Satan. Of course, his name was Lucifer. He was uh, the second in command. He was over the other angels. And uh, according to like the book of Enoch, uh, it tells us that he really kind of wanted to rebel against God, and he wasn't going to bow down to God, and he was going to do his own thing because he wanted to be God, and that he went to really Adam and Eve for the purpose 
of trying to make them worship him by offering them alternatives to what God had offered. But it was not to help Adam and Eve, as we know. It was absolutely to hurt them. Yeah. But if he owned this knowledge, Tim, if he had this knowledge that we can look at the Bible and say there's a comparison there of, of Satan being like um, having nine stones, and then I looked at those nine stones that the Bible talks in comparison uh, to the 12 stones that were on the, uh, the breastplate of the priest that would enter into the Holy of Holies there with the Ark of the Covenant to be able to commune each year with God had these same stones except there was three more of them. Yeah. I, and I'm, I'm like, okay, so in South Georgia we would say that in a case like Satan, he was missing a you know a couple bricks, and that would mean he didn't have he didn't have quite the knowledge of the big guy, but yet he had some pretty good knowledge. And and if you look at the Bible, it specifically says that we were made a little bit lower than the angels. So that would mean that when the serpent was there, and it talks about him being subtle and crafty, that he, those words really mean that he was a little bit more intelligent. And having myself work with handicapped people who who have lower levels of mentality, you can take and manipulate and say things to someone that doesn't have understanding, and you can make them believe one thing and, and really set them up to fall without them knowing it. Yeah, all right. And I, and I think that's kind of what happened in the garden. Okay, okay. So to sort of like summarize here, it's like you're saying that Satan bore a child uh, with, Eve, and then that sort of created like almost a split in the human race between uh, humans and, and sort of uh, crossbreeds of uh, sort of a satanic bloodline, if you will. That's right. Okay. It's human nature, and it's exactly what I did when, uh, when I got your book, was to sort of sk- skip towards the end a little bit. <laughs> and uh, we, we've already, you know, we've already gone like a half hour here, so I want to make sure we, you know, cover all the hot stuff. So let's, let's bring it to the contemporary times and uh, where you see this all heading because I was really surprised by who you finger as the Antichrist and how you see him being, how you saw him being created. So let's, I guess, talk a little bit about that because uh, it's your opinion that Jesus was cloned by the Shroud of Turin. Right. So tell people, you know, well, when I, when I, when I first did... Thing. Right. When I when I first did the the book uh, Antichrist: Calling Image of Jesus Christ, I, the the reason I had such a um, a revelation about this is that my grandmother, of course, was very uh, close to me, and 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 I would always bounce ideas off of her because she was the one I first went to when I was six years of age and woke up after I had had this dream and told her, you know, what was going on and. And so she and I were very close in that she was aware of how this had troubled me all my life. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so we were riding down the road one day, and I had just been reading and doing a lot of research into gar- in, in, in regard to how is it, you know, that Satan could uh, come upon uh, people who were very knowledgeable that that this is a possibility of Satan coming back and, and doing something to us at end times that would be very terrible. Yeah. And 
and the more I had researched this, I was thinking, you know, again, that Eve trusted this serpent. There was something about this tree of knowledge that didn't really frighten her, but enticed her in some way. And and it seemed to me that maybe what this tree was doing was emulating the tree of life. In other words, it looked as good, it seemed as good, it appeared to be okay, it was not frightening. And I had often thought, because, you know, at Halloween, everybody used to dress up as a little devil, and he had the little pitchfork in, in the little red suit, and everybody knew, hey, there goes the devil. Yeah. And I'm like, if the Antichrist comes, he can't do that, because if he does, it's going to be obvious that answer. that is who he is. Yeah. I mean, you know, we've, we've pinpointed people like Hitler in this day and age, uh, and and. You know, and people would say, "Oh, you know, that Hitler was like an antichrist or whatever," and and you would see the evil that was abounding with him, but yet you didn't, you you, you still didn't say devil or whatever. Yeah. And so that and that just really it 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 really would play on my mind over and over about how how could this be? How could this be? And of course, I had been very 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 interested in the Stroud of Turin uh, because. And I have to say this, but that image, when I first saw this, uh, probably 25 years ago, when I laid eyes on the, the Shroud of Turin, a picture of it, you have to understand that in my dream, I saw at age six what Jesus looked like. So this makes it a little bit different than the average Joe Blow that's just going to go look at the Shroud of Turin. Okay. I just absolutely started crying because I was like, my gracious, this looks just like what I saw as a child, and I was blown away by it, and I just couldn't take my eyes off of it, and so that made me want to know, is it real? Is it fake? What 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 are these people saying about this? Because I felt that I had seen this image, but that was when I was a little bitty girl, and there was no pictures that I had ever seen. I mean, I lived in a little small town, and we had a little library, but we didn't have any pictures of the Shroud of Turin, so... I'm like, um, this This is absolutely amazing that this matches what I had seen. So I, in the very beginning, Tim, knew that this cloth is real. And so when I, I did my research, I was going at it, find everything you can to understand about this cloth and how it got to where it's at and who has their hands on it. Mm-hmm. So it was interesting because really... It is, that, that cloth is the greatest evidence of bodily resurrection and life after death that we have. And it proved it. It was going to prove it. And it will prove it. So I, I began really just trying to focus on that and, and understand that with that first book. So like I say, I'm right down the road with my grandmother, and I had been doing some research on something that Hitler was very involved with in an underground bunker in regard to cloning. They had used some frogs and some amphibians and things like that that they were doing some, some tests with, and I'd gotten my hands on some research that I felt was very credible. And as I began to read about this, uh, how simple it was to be able to clone something, but yet it wasn't being talked in the media. It was still in a science, uh, what I call a science fiction fantasy land when I would read articles in regard to it. But yet I'm like, I'm holding this research here, and this is how this can be done. It makes all the sense in the world. It's very simple. It's not a hard procedure. 
And and like I say, I'm driving along with her, and all of a sudden, it's like the light just comes on because I've been like, how can it be that Satan could come to power and people would accept him and not rebel against him? They would go along with all this. He's going to have this power. He's going to be doing this, and he's going to be in this image. And I just slam on the brakes, and my grandmother's like, she's like 90 years old, and she's like, what? what? What's wrong? And I'm like, I know how he's going to pull this off. And and I began to uh, tell her, I said, this is the possibility. The, the, the shroud of Turin is filled with the blood of Jesus. That blood, if it could be taken and put into a woman's egg, as if you had a cell of any other human being, and you put it in there and you electrify it, that will grow into a being that will be the identical exactness, not a twin, but the identical flesh being of the person from which it was taken from. And I said, once it's born, then you would have the DNA of, of God right before you, which would apparently look and act and talk and be like Jesus all over again. And I, and I looked at her, and I, you know, before I actually said Jesus, I said, Elmer, who, who would you uh, want to clone if you could clone? And, of course, she, she said her mother because she, her mother died as, uh, when she was a little, a little, you know, a little small child. And mm-hmm. I said, yes, but who would you want to bring back that could just, like, change everything? And she looked funny at me, and I said, Jesus. Why wouldn't you want to clone Jesus? He would be the perfect thing to bring back. So after this happened on the on the road with me, I came home and I began to look at Revelation, exactly what is the words in, in the book of Revelation telling us that's going on. And so looking at John of Patmos and looking at what he had to say, I began to see that he was using some words that were very unique in regard to uh, when you talk about an image of the beast and an image. And what I found was when you did the Greek translation of the word image, you find that it means pneuma. It's spelled N-E-U-M-A. And it is the strangest word that's ever been used for life in the entire New Testament. And John the Revelator uses that term a total of four times to describe the Antichrist. And if you look at this word pneuma, and you and you you get an understanding, it's like a quasi form of life. And so I did a little bit more research, and I found out that pneuma will actually translate out to our human or, or English word called icon. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, now this is interesting. Who would be an icon for us? We know that usually icons are very famous statues of people. Yeah. And I'm like, statue, image. I'm like, oh, well, we, we, we know that when we've had a statue of Jesus, if he starts showing blood, that people miraculously are healed. You've got statues of Mary. If she has tears or uh, uh, oil or something, that people will flock to those images, to those icons. So this made me do a little bit more research to understand now, okay, if you've got a statue, that has got an image, and you've got something that's a little bit not really life-like, but there's something very life-like in that it can live, but yet it's type of an artificial life. So I'm thinking, okay, if you take 
and you were to clone a person, we know that the Bible specifically says that once you die, that's it. You're not coming back again and again and again. You have to face judgment. And you know that in the cloth that Shrouded Turin with the research that's been done, that the person that was a part of that cloth was something happened, either a type of radiation burst, but some type of major radiation went through that cloth and formed that image, meaning that something changed with that body. So if that body became a resurrected soul, then bringing that person back into the body again or that soul would not be possible. If we're going to believe the Bible as it says, that would not be possible. So when I went back and did a little research on what I would really try to figure out if this, if a being or a clone would have a soul, and I found that in the Jewish Talmud, there was discussion in regard to what was called a golem. Mm-hmm. And the golem is also mentioned in the, in the Bible in one time, and it was in, when David was saying to God that he had seen him in the womb when he was just tissue, meaning no soul, that there was just tissue there. And, of course, I had been doing some research into how the first cancer ever came about because my mother fought cancer for nine and a half years, and I studied everything I could study in regard to cancer and found out that the first cancer tissue or first tumor that was taken out of a woman is still alive today. In fact, her tumor has been used by science for for all kinds of tests. But the interesting fact is in a tumor cell, there is no telomeres. In other words, there's nothing that quits dividing. It continues to divide for eternity. Yeah. There's no stopping point. And the reason that that can stay alive is because it's being fed proteins and whatever to keep the flesh alive indefinitely. So flesh could could live as long as it's, it's fed. So that made me go back and really look and, and as to what it was saying, again, in Genesis. It said that God breathed the breath of life into man and became a living soul. In other words, he was not just a beast of the field, but he had a soul. So in my opinion, in looking at this, it seems that for a beast or a shell or a clone, if it was manufactured, then when you talk about people being possessed by uh, demonic beings, and we know that this occurred because when Jesus walked on the earth, one of the, I guess the very first thing he did was cast out these demons. They talked to him. He talked back to them. He cast them out. They ran into some pigs. The pigs, you know, ran into the water, and the pigs killed themselves. These beings exist. They are here. And if and in, in my book, I talk about the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is probably one of the oldest Sumerian texts that are out there, where Gilgamesh was trying to find the ability to stay alive, to keep flesh alive, because he knew that the moment he died, because he was a giant and had been part of what I believe was the fallen angels upon the daughters of man that we discussed earlier in mm-hmm. regard to bringing about the flood, that to be able to keep flesh alive was the only way for him to keep a body where his soul could stay in it. So these, these beings, these demonic beings are constantly looking, you know, to get into a, a, a person or live within a person, and that's why Jesus was casting them out. But for Satan 
to be able to live on this earth, he has to be in a fleshly state. If he tries to, this is the thing that always got me, is that if he tried to take over, let's say, Hitler, Hitler had a soul. But if he had not had a soul, then there was no chance of him being exercised or changed or, or whatever. That's something that Satan would always have to worry about if he came into a person that someone that's an exorcist or the person themselves has free will. They could turn around and say, well, I don't want to do this. I'm not going to be a part of this. you know. And, 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 and that, that being or that demonic entity has to leave under those circumstances. Yeah. Biblically, is you can't stay there. So there has to be a vehicle that Satan could live in that looks like a human form that's in an image that is so profound that it would be able to do the things that apparently Jesus did, which would bring about the fire from the heaven, to be able to do miraculous works, to be able to you know coordinate things in such a great scale. And so I'm like, well, if you had a clone body, the perfect thing for Satan to ride around in. It's his ultimate vehicle. And at the same time, he looks like the thing that everybody will flock to if it starts bleeding in a statue. Yeah. So this this really started to make a little bit more sense to me in regard to Thessalonians talking about that when you see this uh, abomination stand in the temple of God, proclaiming himself that he is God. And many times, you know, we've been waiting for the temple to be rebuilt in Jerusalem, and and. There is indication through some of the research that I've done that the temple itself could be placed there side of the Dome of the Rock, and if you leave out the court of the Gentiles, and you know, being able to build a temple quick and put somebody in it—that's still a, a great possibility. But the more that I've looked at this, when it's talking about in Daniel about this abomination of desolation, it appears to me that it is a man. He is in flesh, and he is saying that he is in God, or he is the God. Yeah. So I have tried to piece this together to show that if Satan was walking in the flesh of God, and if you had the proof that that flesh was in fact God-like, then that would transcend and coordinate an understanding of why all races would come together to accept him for who he is. So doing the research on the Strat of Turin, I found that this was, of course, we know the Bible says there was a cloth that was wrapped around Jesus that was a linen cloth, and that when he uh, was put into the tomb and it was sealed that when Mary Magdalene came back to the tomb and the tomb was open, that there were these cloths that were laying in this tomb and that the other disciples that came with her actually saw this cloth. Now, over the course of history and the people that have done the research, there have been time and time again where one science would, scientist would say this and one would say that. But if you go back and look at the stirrup committee, that is the ones that first 
came out with their research back in 1968, they were taking samples from that cloth and they actually took blood samples and they cloned those samples and they specifically said that there was blood from a male and from a female and that there were characteristics of a Jewish male and that that blood was a type of what they said was AB blood. All those kinds of little things I'm like, Okay, we already had somebody looking at this back in 68, and there was already blood being taken. So how, if this cloth came through history, uh, might it really be authentic? So, you know, different people will say, well, there was uh, the way to photograph this, or somebody painted it, and, and Da Vinci redid it, and it was really, de, you know, yeah. Da Vinci's body, and he painted himself. I mean, I've read everything you could read on that. I have researched every ounce of everything that's been written on the shroud. But the thing that really makes it so true is that because there was a face napkin that they always placed on the face uh, when they would wrap people, it appears to me that this face napkin didn't end up with the same grouping that had, or the groups that had the shroud, the the face napkin is now in Avita, Spain, and of course, it has the blood spots and everything. But it has been put against the shroud itself, and those blood stains are identical to what is on the shroud in the exact same places, and the linen cloths are exactly the same. So, the question that people have in regard to the shroud not being authentic because it's not old enough. And we've all heard the stories when they did the carbon dating that it made it more around Da Vinci's time, and that's what pushed everybody to believe that it was a cloth that uh, Da Vinci had something to do with. And I will agree, Da Vinci is a strange bird, and I've done a lot of research on him. In fact, I've got some research that I have on my, my website and how he did some crazy things. But the shroud is a whole different ball game. Because if the space uh, napkin that is there is in Oviedo, Spain, we're talking about that that was already encased and kept there, like you know, 500 A.D. And you know, that 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 right there shows you that there is no way that the carbon dating that was done on the on the shroud is correct, because it was saying that it was Da Vinci's time. What was interesting to me is that when the pieces of the shroud were taken to be carbon dated, they took an area of the shroud that had been reworked. This is interesting to me because the people who cut that shroud knew that that area had been reworked. And I think it was done. This is where we talk about the conspiracy and how we want to keep things away from the general public because the time for the revealing is not yet time for it to come to pass. They cut that cloth. And when they sent it to the laboratories to be, you know, resolved as to the, the dating, they all came about, you know, up with about the same date. But they never dreamed that there would be somebody that had access to that cloth that said, from a textile uh, standpoint, let's look at the, the, the cloth itself. And they found that inside of that linen cloth there was, there was actually pieces of cotton that had been woven in between it. So that was probably woven from some of the damage on the ends that had been done. But I found it strange that they cut that cloth knowing that that was an area that was going to be like that, and it would actually it would actually skew the carbon dating. Yeah. Now, 
if that was the case, then somebody's trying to keep the fact of the shroud quiet. They're trying to keep it hidden. Indeed. On top of that, when the Vatican actually received this shroud from King Umberto, and it was given to uh, them, um, actually to to the, the Vatican, I believe in 1983, I think it's when it was actually just given to the, the actually to the Pope under his, I guess, his guiding hand. It was, uh, again, allowed to have scientists in and, and to do some work and whatever. But since that time, they have all wanted, the, the scientists have wanted to, uh, to, to progress in their, I guess, scientific analysis of it. And now the Vatican has requested that if you've got blood samples, you are to return them immediately. And there's a couple of the guys that were a part of that that are now dead under strange circumstances. So you go back and you look, okay, it's one thing to say this is the most researched relic in history, which it is. It's another thing that it, it actually could prove that there's life after death, which I can't imagine any human being not wanting to know that on a, a straightforward basis, a scientific basis to say, yes, everybody, we're going to live again, and here's proof of it. But it's almost like... We don't want to tell you that quite yet because we haven't gotten you to a point for something. Yeah. So what's the point? What are we holding out on? Because really, Tim, if I was a scientist and I could just lay this out to everybody, I would say, okay, your soul is the most important thing in your body. You better not be doing anything bad. We know that paradise is possible. We live forever, and somebody's going to pay for doing wrong. And it, do you want to be on which side? Which side do you want to be on? And here's the proof and the evidence. So if you were being straightforward with people, you would want to tell people that. So why is it that somebody's keeping it all kind of quiet? One minute, this route is real. The next minute, this route is bad. The next minute, this <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Exactly. It's like yeah. in and out, in and out. We see this happening not only with Israel, but we see it happening with all the archaeological finds. And I mentioned this in my book, Eden. You've got the underworld that's there in Egypt. They just recently closed the doors to go down there and look at that stuff. Why? Why don't, why don't you want the world to know that there is an underworld? Why do you not want them to know that the Egyptian pharaohs were a type of strange breed that had huge skulls that don't look anything like our skulls. I mean, you can look at the hieroglyphics and you see these huge skulls. And, of course, you know, they say, oh, well, they wanted to make their skulls look funny, and they put boards around them and they stretched them. And I'm like, okay, I understood that as a child, but that's not the case. So if you start looking at, un we uncover giant bones, and they hide them somewhere because they don't fit the pattern of what they really want you to know. Like recently, we've seen the big thing about Noah's Ark, and I write about Noah's Ark in, in my book. There are pictures on top of area. This is huge anomaly up there. I mean, we have. You can look at Global Earth or whatever. There's an anomaly up there. There's somebody knows what's up there. Why don't they want us to have accessibility? Oh, well, the Turkish people, they don't want anybody up there. Well, if this proves that humanity encountered a flood and there was a man named Noah and we all came from his children, why wouldn't you want people to know these things? Somebody has an agenda to keep us, the little common people, 
from understanding the truth because once we understand the truth, then we can understand that there are kings and princesses and royal bloodlines that have come through history that came from that Cain lineage that I'm showing you in, in my book. Yeah. What do you think, Reverend? Once something has been approved by the government, it's no longer immoral. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Why can't I worship the Lord in my own way? By praying like hell on my deathbed. All right, Dr. Joy, let's get down to brass tacks here. Who is the Antichrist, according to your research? Well, because these kings and princes have ruled the world all this time, mm -hmm. and we know that when Jesus was on earth, that Satan took him up on the mountaintop, and he said, if you will just worship me, I will give you all of this. And then Jesus was like, absolutely not. My kingdom is not of this world. Who are the people, how did they get where they are, that are considered the royal bloodlines, the, the connection? If you take and you look at the politicians that have just been in the United States alone, they are all family tied together, meaning that there is a bloodline from the serpent that has existed from day one. Mm -hmm. And in looking at this, you see that it is a parallelization of the 12 tribes of Israel. We had 12 tribes that became the Hebrew children, that became the children of God. There is also a 12, 13 Illuminati bloodline. And the reason there's 13 is that the 12 tribes, when Joseph died, in the 12 tribes of the Hebrews, his children became the 13, in other words, it made them 13 total. Mm -hmm. That's why there are 13 Illuminati bloodlines. They're all tied together. The main bloodline, according to Grail lore, is the Merovingian bloodline. And we first were introduced to this with Dan Brown's books, and when he, in which he tried to make people really get a grasp that if Jesus and Mary Magdalene had had children, that they had a bloodline, and from this bloodline would come this royal family. Well, it's interesting that when you do the research, as I've done, the royal family that he's talking about is none other than the Windsors of Wells. And the connection to that bloodline goes back and picks up through the Germans. They actually changed their names, and they manipulated things to make it them appear more anglicized so people wouldn't start going, oh, now, how is there a connection here to Hitler? And how does Hitler have a connection to the Vatican? And how does the Vatican have a connection to Britain? And how does Britain control the world? And who is the most and most powerful person on the face of this earth? Who owns the most? Who has this? Who has that? When you start doing the research, it all points back to the Windsor family. Okay. When they brought in what I will call the sacrificial lamb, Diana, she was 19 years old. She was a virgin. And according to all the books that have been written as far as Wiccan, anything that has to do with underworld kinds of things or any kind of uh, satanic or certain uh, serpent uh, lineage information that I've been able to get my hands on, the intent was to bring about a antichrist through a woman that had to be at least 
19, and that she would be actually bred to be the person to give birth to the Antichrist. Well, in doing the research, I found that if you go back and you look at Diana's, her history as far as her lineage, she tied all the way back a certain way that Charles' family didn't. So that allowed their heir to be the most closely related to what I would say what they've tried to show is the lineage of David. And we know that Jesus was of the lineage of David. And when I really started looking at what are the signs that something strange could have happened here, I found it interesting that Charles had always loved Camilla. Why did he not marry Camilla all those years ago? Well, somebody could say, well, you know, they just didn't hit it off or what. But that's not the case because we know that Diana always said that he never quit loving Camilla. Even while she was married to him, there was an, a relationship going on, and that even before they were married, he was having a relationship with Camilla. So Charles was waiting on something. It appears to me from the from the information that I've gained is that Diana knew something strange was going to happen to her, and she could not get out of this. It is interesting that it's not brought out a lot, but she tried to kill herself three times while she was pregnant with William. I mean, one time, even throwing herself down a flight of stairs. And at that point, they intervened, and again, I think they began at that point to, to uh, really control her by saying, if you don't do what we tell you to do, we're going to get rid of you. Yeah. And I think that she knew that if she could have killed her and this baby, that she could have stopped this diabolical plan. It's interesting that a woman that would be, let's say, the princess, already on her wedding night was making comments and some of the people that she had talked to that were close friends of hers that she was she was going to be used as a sacrificial lamb. She called the Windsors. She called them lizards. And the fact that she was being taken really to slaughter and the fact that she tried so desperately to educate her two children in a positive light, that she was trying to show them the good, the good sides, to, to, to do all these little wonderful things for people. But at the same time, I think she confided in her first bodyguard. And that's the guy that ended up dead. And I think she knew then that if I run my mouth too much, I'm going to be history. And she even made the comment that she had already found out that she was probably going to die in an, an automobile accident. And she said that Charles would be the one that would be behind it. So if you start looking at all the tabloids, if you start really reading the inside stories, if you start looking at, well, the fact is, what did Charles do once he had William all set, ready to go, and 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 everything was set for him to be king, then all of a sudden he's through with Diana? I mean, honestly, if you had the choice as a man between <laughs> Diana and Camilla, which one would you choose? <laughs> I mean, I'm a woman, but my gracious, <laughs> if I had to choose an ugly man or a good-looking man, I think I'd choose a good one-looking one over the ugly one. I mean, you know what I'm saying. Yeah. So there's something not right there. Okay. There's something not right that there was not a break 
uh, ever between him and Camilla. And, and then he's led this little 19-year-old girl along. They put her in, you know, uh, kind of a secluded area. She was kept away from her family uh, for, you know, the couple of months before the wedding. I mean, there's all kinds of these little weird things. She talks about that the night that uh, she actually was married, that Charles was reading all of these what I call uh, evil books about, you know, conjuring up these demons and um, and being able to, um, it was it actually, it was a kind of stuff that was called African black magic. And, you know, she's saying that on her wedding night, that this was so strange to her that she actually cried herself to sleep. Now, you know, this is something that she told in her own words. This is not something that I'm making up. She actually told that, you know, on the secret tapes that were that Jane Polly she did a uh, an NBC special back in 2004, and she said, even Diana said, I felt like I was going to slaughter. I was told I could not turn back. I knew Charles did not love me before I was married. Okay. So, so if that was the case. What was going on there, Tim? Something's not right here. Something's not adding up. Okay, so you're saying that Prince William is the Antichrist. Does he know that he is the Antichrist? Is he of the knowledge that, you know, he was he's this creation? Obviously, apparently, uh, with regards to your research, he's soulless and a clone of Jesus. Well, what we've done, and you can go to my website at drjoye.com, mm -hmm. and look at the research that I've got there in regard to taking the Shroud of Turin, because this was important to me before I ever did my book, was to look at how does William add up to the face of the Shroud. And we had, we had done some things prior to, to kind of age him and make him look a certain way, but, you know, in in this past year, he did something wonderful. He grew a beard, and that was that was like the pivotal moment. You know, we're going to see how this beard really looks on him, other than us trying to put it there and make it, you know, see how it looks. It was it was absolutely amazing because um, the graphic artist uh, that I work with, great professional lady, she was able to look at these for me and compare them in such a manner that there is no doubt that he is absolutely from head to toe the matching image of that shroud. Now, I find this interesting, Tim, is that if he is cloned, if they did clone him, why would he not be aware that he is in that image? Because it's, it's too obvious yeah. that he looks like the shroud. I mean, I just invite anybody that thinks he doesn't to go and look at the research because it, it definitely he he matches it. I mean, he literally physically matches that shroud. So I don't think probably when he was a young man, but I think that we're going to see something that's very unique happen. In that Jesus came uh, to be baptized when he was uh, thirty years old with John the Baptist there in the Jordan, and that's when the uh, the dove came down, and and of course they they heard the words, "This is my son." And uh, I think that it's interesting that when William turns thirty years of age, we've all you know we've heard you know for years now about the May in twenty twelve calendar and all this, the stuff that could happen with the end of the Mayan calendar. Well, I just find it interesting that in 2012, 
William will turn 30 years of age. He was born on June the 21st, which is the summer solstice, which is very significant. According to Diana herself, he was born under a king star. There was an eclipse. There was also other signs that she says made him um, wise beyond his uh, age. And she actually called him her little old man. Mm -hmm. She also called him Will or Wills. She never used William. And it's interesting also that on William, you've got I-A-M, which is I am. And many times when William has been speaking, he would say, well, I just, I just, I am. He uses that I am a lot in context to what he's speaking. Mm -hmm. And so I think that when we were talking about the Mayan 2012 calendar, and we talk about Quetzalcoatl, who was the feathered serpent that is supposed to return, I believe that we are talking about an angel, which they, they would say feathered bird in the air, that Quetzalcoatl was white, that he would return, and that the 2012 time period is very interesting because on that particular date of December the 21st, when this is supposed to all come about, if you know anything about the Mayan pyramids, when the sun is at a certain apex against those pyramids, it appears that the shadow looks like a serpent starting at the top of the uh, the pyramid, and as the as the as it gets to a perfect state of the apex of the sun, that serpent comes down the side of the uh, the pyramid, and at the bottom of the pyramid, there's this little it looks like a serpent head that it transcends unless it comes into the earth. I think that what we're going to see there is that you're going to see something similar to what happened with Jesus when he turned 30 in the dove. We're going to see the return of the serpent. Uh, and I think at that point in time is when you're going to um, to see that there is a, an establishment of him either as becoming a type of king or moving into aspects of being the king because the Bible tells us that in Daniel, that it's going to be a seven-year type of tribulation period that's never been seen before. Of course, we know in the book of Revelation, it tells you the different signs and seals and judgments that will come to pass. And from my research, uh, there would be a, like a three-and-a-half-year period before he would step into the temple and proclaim himself actually to, to be God in the flesh and, and, and to be the rightful owner of the keys to the kingdom. And what that all means is that it's interesting to me that in 2012, we have during the period of time when the when the uh, the Olympics will be returning to the city of London, that you can look at the logo. And if you haven't had a chance to look at the logo, I, I encourage you to go to my website. We've we've got it posted there. But it it was supposed. It, let me just say it is supposed to look like 2012 until you really take a good good look at it. Because it not only says the word Zion, but it also shows on the 2 and the 0 and the 1 and the 2, if you put the 20 on top of the 12, you can see that the 2 and the um, 1 look like a man, and the 0 and the 2 at the bottom look like a man kneeling, and that the Olympic rings are in an area that looks like a crown. So I think that, you know, if we look back at the gods, the Greek gods and they, you know, Olympus and all that, 
that it's the return of the king. And all that has to do with what I believe is the setup that probably many have said that they thought that William may announce his engagement to be married. But I, I really think what's going to happen is that uh, the queen is going to actually announce that she's going to be making him king because uh, Diana specifically said that Charles would never be king. And the only reason that Charles could ever be king would be something happened uh, in time-wise before the time was for William to step into the process of kingship. Um, but they moved the uh, stone that they typically would uh, do coronations on back to Scotland, which was a very unique move because of the fact that the clones, uh, the sheep there at, at Roslyn Institute, which is not too far from Roslyn Chapel, which is considered the the top chakra for initiation into secret societies, are all located there, that that, that particular uh, crowning stone has been moved back to Scotland for some purpose, not to crown the king of uh, England again, but maybe to crown the king of something else. The world. Uh, that's what I think. And and so, you know, we, we're getting everything is coming in, into play, into place so, so very perfectly. Um, right now, the, the queen has already relinquished some of her uh, activities for William to do and his aides have been set in place for him to be able to, uh, you know, to make these uh, visits and whatever. And if, if you notice, he's starting to uh, do similar things much like Jesus did in that uh, he, he slept outside, you know, with the people who were homeless. He's, he's been in Africa with the people who were very sick. He has also received his um, wings into the Air Force, and I, I find that very interesting since Satan has power over the air. Uh, the other thing is his, uh, the group that he flies with is called the Dragons. And uh, he was seen, which is, this is very not known, but he was seen in Iraq, and that he was a part of a uh, removal of some stones from Iraq. And uh, those stones were supposedly hidden very secretly in the ground. Hmm. Uh, and that has never been broadcast or never been told, and I find that interesting that he was there and, uh, and where did you those get stones this, Where did you hear that from? Uh, oh, that is an inside that I can't, I will never reveal. Oh, boy. So you have some that, inside sources here. Inside sources. And uh, in my opinion, if he was there getting the stones that I think he was getting out of the ground over there in Iraq, we know that the stone that's been moved to, to Scotland was the one that supposedly Jacob fell asleep on and saw the ladder, you know, of the angels coming and going from heaven, that those stones have some major, major significance. And uh, I, I really explained this in my book, Eden, about the these lodestones and how they're set up <clears throat> and how they will manipulate the Earth's current. We have on the Earth a magnetic grid, and all your major mega, megalithic sites are set up on these, these grids. And on top of that, those grids are considered dragon nodes, and they can be activated through quartz. And it's interesting that our heart project that was established in Alaska that can affect the uh, weather patterns can also be beamed to, uh, you know, these towers that we have for cellular phones. And your cell phone has a quartz in it just like your radio does, and that's how you pick up these radio waves for your your phone or if you want to listen to radio, AM and FM. The interesting thing on top of that is you have got a little gland in your head called a pineal gland that I go in great detail about. 
that is filled filled with quartz. Yeah. Okay. So okay, what is going to be used is that you're talking about a person that has accessibility to manipulate a power on this earth that could actually broadcast to your head wow. all at one time for every human being. So what sort of signs should people be looking for here if your thesis is correct and uh, Prince William is the Antichrist and will be ascending in 2012? Uh, you know, what should we be looking for? I think that you're going to see him take the stage uh, to do more and more and more that it looks... Uh, 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 very supportive of people. In other words, will have that um, benevolent uh, caringness uh, that I would think that Jesus would have portrayed. Uh, I think that you will see that uh, the Queen is going to be giving him uh, more and more accessibility to take on whatever is going to be needed as far as functions for him to be able to be a part of heads of state meetings and that kind of thing. I also think that the uh, Olympics, the fact that the Olympic Stadium is, has, is going to be built and is being built on a oracle site, a megalithic node of this same ley line, and, and you know, that's just, how, how common could, I mean, how, how much coincidence could that be? <laughs> and if you look at the 2012 the Olympics, and all the little agenda that's behind it, I encourage people to look at what's being put right in your face. I mean, really look at it, where that's at. Even the roads around that Olympic Stadium are named for things like Joseph, the Carpenter Road, Angels. I mean, those things are just not there for any coincidence. Yeah. They're there for a major purpose. And uh, it, as as you look at William and as you look at the Shroud of Turin, you're going to see the Shroud of Turin, they're going to start making a little bit more discoveries to bring out these things. So we're going to start finding more ar archaeological evidence, but the evidence will become greater and greater and greater to prove that we are going to be bringing the Messiah back and that he has this capability. Um, so, oh wait, so now you're saying that they're going to reveal that the Shroud of Turn is It's accurate, real. And then are they in turn going to reveal that Prince William was a clone of Jesus? Exactly. Okay. And they're going to do that. This very, very easy. I mean, it will be very easy to do. The Vatican owns the Shroud of Turin. In St. Mal Malachi's prophecy of the Pope's, there is to be one more pope named Peter the Roman. Mm -hmm. There has never been a pope ever named Peter because they felt like they could never be like the first Peter. Yes. So somebody now feels like they, when they come on board as the next pope, that they can take and emulate Peter. The reason they choose the name Peter it's because in the Bible, the Catholic Church has always used the fact that the that the reason they say Peter was the you know the vicar of Christ was they use the scripture that says that God says on this foundation I will you know on your, you are the rock and you are the foundation of which I'm established in the church. He was talking Jesus was talking about himself. He really but the Catholics had got it that it was Peter and he was the foundation stone. That that that's why they say that Peter has the keys to the kingdom or the Pope has the keys to the kingdom. Mm -hmm. 
in the prophecy, in the phantom of prophecies, is that that pope is going to turn around and give the keys back to its rightful owner. So it only makes sense for the Vatican as the false prophet to walk into the temple and give the keys back to its rightful owner because Jesus is standing there in the flesh. Yeah. They don't need he doesn't need to be the vicar of yeah, Christ anymore. He's right there in flesh. Well, you know, he's the man. So they're going to give the keys back. They're going to say the shroud is real. They're going to prove the blood. And we can on my website I show the the archaeological finds from Ron White, who specifically says that blood was never dead. Because I've heard people say, well, they can't clone the shroud because the blood's dead. Well, the blood on the shroud is not dead, people. So they're just going to announce this, that they cloned Jesus 30 years ago, and it's Prince... Now, I'm getting a little skeptical here with you, and forgive me, uh, Dr. Joy, it's nothing personal or pejorative. I'm just taking the skeptical take on this. So when they announce that they cloned Jesus like 30 years ago, aren't people going to be a little upset that they weren't told or anything like that, or that they weren't, you know, that this was a decision that <laughs> was not theirs to make, and we already have all of the moral issues surrounding cloning. So, you know, I'm wondering how this is all going to play out, or do you think people are just going to, you know, bow down to Prince William because they'll just accept that he's the clone of Jesus? Well, what's going to happen if you look at the seven the seven seals and all the things that start happening with the moment when this uh, when Satan will enter into him, I, like I say, I believe it will be totally just like it was with Jesus with the with the um, the dove. We're about to go through a tribulation, and if the tribulation is anything like what I saw in my dream, you will be so afraid. And let's let's look back at what it says at this, it, it, as far as what President Reagan said to Gorbachev. And some of, like even Kissinger has made the comments. If you feel that there's a threat from an outside source, we would come together as a group of people, as humans, against that outside source, as a threat from that outside source. Yeah. I truly believe that this world is fixing to experience something so devastating, and that is the revealing that there are fallen angels and that they've been here with us all the time, that they watch us 24 7, that somebody's watching us. All the time. But they're going to be manifested as being aliens. Oh, boy. Okay? Yeah. And because this alien threat, and all of a sudden we're going to see signs changing in the sun, moon, and stars. We're already seeing that we're having more earthquakes. We're seeing we're having more floods. We're seeing how bad the hurricanes are getting and our volcanoes. When people panic... They will do anything. And when people see just the statue of Jesus bleeding and they are miraculously healed, even though it's a statue, they flock. Okay, so, you're, so they're going to say, you know, who cares, we're gonna, in who other cares words, how we we're, got him? He's well, that's right. He can heal us. He can help us. I'm believing in him. If he tells me to go down and get this mark on me, I'm going to do it because I, he is promising me life forever in the flesh. That is the same deception that Satan promised Eve, that she would have all the knowledge, but she didn't. Okay, now we know that Jesus performed all these miracles. Is Prince William going to be able to perform? Yes. Okay. 
Yes. He will be able, the Bible specifically says that the Antichrist is, it, is so believable. He is so believable. It says that if the time's not cut short, that not even the elect could not be deceived. So that tells you even the most, the highest theologians that would know the most about it, if the time is not cut short, would be totally deceived. All right. Um, now, please don't take offense at my skepticism. <laughs> I would not take offense. Okay. This is interesting to me, and, and I love researching it. I mean, I, I want to look at every avenue. Yeah. So now he's, Prince William, he's the Antichrist. He doesn't care that they murdered his mother and they put his mother through all this. He has no empathy for her plight. Well, you know, there's been many that have said, you know, and of course he was the one who went before, according to the documentary that he did, they went before the Queen Mother and said, you know, I want my mother to have a funeral and have it as it was done. He mm -hmm. was the one who stepped forward to do that. He has also, you know, brought about several situations where the uh, Mercedes in which she was traveling that they have done different investigations on, and, and one of the more recent ones has been that the chip that was in the Mercedes that uh, apparently you can use to manipulate an engine has been removed and was removed, and nobody knows where it's at. Uh, so there's some ongoing investigation that's happening, but you must understand that if the body is not, it does not have a soul like you and I have, yeah. then it's a whole different process of understanding what would be going on in a mind that does not have the typical soul that we have. Yeah. Because for Satan to come into that body and not have the chance of being removed from it, that soul would have to go. Now, the process could happen as easy as this. Because it says in the Bible that there was a head wound, we know that, that William has already had one head wound. He was injured Actually, if it had not been in this day and age, he would have died from a head wound. He was hit in the head with a golf club as a child and underwent some serious, serious major repair to his skull. In, fit, in fact, uh, on his head, he has a huge scar. And in one in which he said in a newspaper briefing with a, uh, with a um, newspaper reporter, that it kind of looked like him, like the, the Harry Potter scar, <laughs> which I thought was like, oh, just tell the truth. But anyway, the fact is he's already had one head, head wound. And at that point, you know, did he, if he did die, did something come into him or what? But I feel like that something has already, already been there because uh, when Princess Diana and Charles, they did the um, – um, official baptism that they do with each child. Usually they do that out in public and they have a big, you know, social event about it. But with William, they didn't do that. They chose to do it in a closed area um, there and um, they used the, the water from the River Jordan, which I thought was a little bit interesting. Yeah. Now, and then the people that were there that were recording the event said that William howled. And I'm like, I can kind of understand that it could be a British term maybe, but to me babies don't howl, but wolves do. Yeah. And was it to make sure that when you sprinkled him with holy water that he did exactly what demons do? They howl. And if you've ever seen an exorcism, they howl. 
now what about uh, now what about the other son here, Prince Harry? I always thought my brother was the Antichrist, but for, I guess for him. <laughs> I've had a couple people see their wives and husbands work too, but no, <laughs> don't so think so. What is his role in this drama going to be? Well, I think it's pretty interesting that um, you know there's always been the speculation that that Harry may have not even been uh, Charles's child either; that he. He was actually looks more like the guy that she dated or that they said that Diana was kind of involved with after, you know, all the things were said and done with Charles and, and uh, Camilla's relationship was all out and open. But even in um, Simone's book that she did in regard to talking with Diana that she wrote, they said that they did the um, the blood test, but it was her comment was it was it was as it should be. It didn't say that William was or, or really that Harry were children of Charles who just said as it should be. They didn't they didn't specify, which is very typical of esoteric writing, but anyway. Um I as far as Harry being able to, to know the process, if he knows what's good for him, he'll keep his mouth shut. That's one thing. He already he already knows his mama's dead from talking too much, yeah. I'm sure. And uh if he if he has the bloodline of uh if he is, if he really is Charles' son, then he has the bloodline of the serpent, and uh, he's going to uh, do exactly what Cain did. If we look at anything, people will say, "Well, you know, can't they see?" But you must understand that the serpent lineage was never going to bow to God. Cain never did. He knew exactly what he was supposed to do. He didn't choose to do it. Neither did any of his lineage uh, do anything with God in, in regard to God. In fact, when Moses and the Israelites were coming out of Egypt, they were told to stay away from those particular lineages that had the uh, the giants that got through the flood, which I think came, I, I actually my research shows through, through Ham's lineage. Um, and, and they were told to kill every woman, child. And, and you know, we think, well, why would God want to kill, you know, kill children? It was because of the lineage. It was yeah. because of that being a lineage. It was not like the lineage of God that was established here. So... Um, that's why it's important, and I, and I know you skipped around, Tim, in the book, but that, that's why it's important to start in the beginning, because then once you see the process of how it's come through history and why it is where it is today and how it has to be this way, then you can kind of come to grips a little bit better as to who's pulling the strings. Now, the other thing is, the Bible also mentions, and people have you know, always, always questioned whether we would have a, a rapture of uh, the church. And that could explain some of the things, too, as far as the acceptance of what's going on in the Mark of the Beast and things like that. But I do believe that uh, the Christians would still be here during the time that, that William, if he is indeed the Antichrist, if he steps into a temple and say they choose to build a temple and proclaim himself to, to be God standing in the flesh there, then it, the Bible says, you know, for you to run, not even to turn back to pick up anything, for you to run, that things are really fixing to, to come about. And according to Revelation, that would be when your final great wrath, or the great wrath of the tribulation, would actually start. And then, of course, those there's like seven terrible things that do happen at, at that point in time. But I find that there is a, a period of time that's right before that occurs, after the fact that he's already claimed himself, that there is a what they call a silence in heaven. And when we think about Enoch, the fact that he was translated out by God prior to the flood, and then, of course, you had people like Methuselah and Lamech, and actually Methuselah died probably just as the rain started because of his, his year of life and the time that the flood started. It makes me believe that some people would like would be like Enoch, 
because it says in the days, you know, in the return of Jesus, it would be like the days of Noah. So I think that some people will emulate Enoch in the fact that some will be translated out and are caught up. And I, I, people have used the word rapture. We know the word rapture does not appear in the Bible. But in Thessalonians, it does talk about being catching away yeah. and that kind of thing. So I do think that there would be some that would, would absolutely be like the Church of Philadelphia where it says in the book of Revelation there in the first chapters that uh, they would not see the great wrath. And when we talk about great wrath, it would be great wrath would be like the flood of Noah was the great wrath. The very last maybe seven things of um, uh, the vials that are being put out on the earth would be the great wrath. It's called the great wrath. So for some reason, those people will not be a part of that. Uh, the 144,000 that's talked about that are sealed at the end of time, I fully believe that the reason they are sealed is because of the pineal gland in the forehead. Because if the, if, if what I believe about the stone and the connection to the stone and the energy grid that is there and it's already set up, that if you don't have the seal of Christ on your head, then your pineal gland is open. And anyone that knows anything about ELF waves, they can be beamed at you. And if you are in line, your brain will pick it up and you will become fearful. You can get nauseated. Your heart rate can go up. You can sweat. All kinds of hallucinations can happen. Uh, so it's a terrible way to be controlled, but I'm, I'm afraid that that may be where we're headed during that great uh, wrath, and that is why those 144,000 are sealed. And I think the sealing, again, I, I show the parallels between, you know, the beginning and the end, is that the 144,000 are sealed just like Noah was sealed inside the ark and was not allowed to be, you know, in, in the Great Wrath. He rode through the Great Wrath without having to deal with it physically okay. other than be on the boat. Now, obviously, you're clearly a devout Christian, and I, I respect that, and, and uh, you know, I have, I have total respect for that. Uh, but will you concede that all of your thesis here is dependent upon, uh, you know, the Bible being, I guess, not necessarily a literal translation, but at least uh, a depiction of what actually happened. Do you know what I mean? Uh-huh. Well, I guess that was one of the reasons why I really tried to go back and and look at, you know, and read the Koran, read the, the books that are Hindu. I, I tried to look at the uh, Tibetan books. I tried to I tried to look at all the religions, and I found, you know, that we all had, they all had a beginning. They all have a, usually most all the histories of the world have a significant flood. Uh, even looking at the, the Mayans, the Incas, the Toltec, I mean, every, the Indians, the, the American Indian, trying to see, the Hopi. I mean, I've tried to look at all the prophecies, even the Hopi prophecies, and how in regard do they bring about a change or a coming or a, uh, infiltration of something, and, I, and it's interesting to me that they all kind of coordinate that there's a beginning and that there's an end. And it seems to me that, you know, when you look at who built the megalithic buildings, you find that the builders were of the Cain and what I believe was Ham's lineage because we, we see that the Tower of Babel was actually built by Nimrod, who was a grandson of Ham. And so this great building was going up, and what, again, caused uh, God to, to say, well, I can't have this right now, and he dispersed everybody uh, with different languages. But you still see that those megalithic buildings have a, cor have a correlation to what I say are satanic or serpentine connections. All your megalithic, especially in uh, Mexico, 
in South America all use this rattlesnake look um, of, of texture of symbol, and uh, there's a this kind of a coordinating factor uh, in, the, in even in the fact that they call the return the return of the feathered serpent, and, and the fact that we talk about the serpent in in the Bible, and then we talk about the the serpent in Revelation. There, there's too many core. I guess what I'm trying to say is. Uh, I, I I wanted to know the truth, so you know a lot of people say, "Well, I'm a Baptist. I'm going to you know keep my focus right on being a Baptist." But I wanted to see, you know, is there another religion out there that's different? What what is what's different about our religion? What's different about their religion? Where are the coordinating factors at? And there's a lot of coordinating factors. I mean, there's coordinating factors between Muslims and and uh, the fact that they have Muhammad with the child that was named Fatima and how they respect the fact that Mary did have a child named Jesus and that she was in fact a virgin that he was he came from a virgin birth so there's there's correlating factors between all of this enough and there's a secret society connection people say well you know I don't understand how they could build a temple but I'm like if you understand secret societies it doesn't matter whether you are a muslim whether you are African, aware that you are Jew, whatever you are, yeah. the, the, the secret society bonds you with a blood oath that transcends that. Yeah. So if we want to say from a secret society standpoint, we're going to build the Temple of Solomon, which they all reflect as, you know, the perfect king of whatever, that wise and whatever. If they say we're going to build that temple back and they coordinate it, it won't matter if there's Muslims, Jews, whatever. It won't be like this, this brace of a break with races because that oath transcends all that. You know, a lot of people have come along over the years and predicted uh, pretty much what, not not what you're predicting as far as Prince William goes, but predicted, uh, you know, how the end times would unfold, and many, many, many of them have been wrong. Are you prepared, I guess you could say, to potentially be wrong about this? What if five, ten years goes by and none of this happens. So, you know, what if Prince William dies? What if, you know, what, you know, have you given any thought to that sort of scenario? Well, the, the thing about it is this. It's like I said earlier. It seems to me like the pastors throughout the ages have just gotten so scared of that that they're afraid to, to sound the alarm. And And I really, you know, I really decided when I decided to bring this out to the public that I was willing to do this because there was too many there was too many coincidences for it not to be significant. Okay. And so, you know, if if I have failed to miss the mark, at least what I have shown is that we are living in an age that is capable of doing something very much as to what the Bible says is going to happen. And it says at the end of time that there was going to be great birth pains, and those birth pains are going to get closer and closer together as if a woman is travailing in labor. And I can't think of anything more significant than just the changes in our climate and in the other naturistic things that are happening that apply more and more to that. So whether I miss the mark or not, I think, if anything, my research has prepared you as a person to know why you're here and have your eyes open and not be blinded about what is going to come to pass. Okay, I think that's the perfect uh, way to wrap it up here. What what can people expect from you in the future? Are you? Oh, wait a minute. Now I had one more question here. Now, clearly, if what you're saying is true, then you 
Dr. Joy are perhaps the most dangerous person out there to this satanic agenda. So why have you not, you know, been eliminated or why have you been allowed to, you know, reveal the truth of this plan and have you received any sort of, uh, you know, threats or anything like that? Well, I think that I deal with, uh, my whole life has been, I mean, that would take a whole other thing to deal with the things that have happened in my life, and I can see Satan's handiwork of trying to really cause me some problems. And yes, I have, I've been threatened, and I've been told this, and I've been told that, but the thing about it is, it's time, and and I think because it's time that God has allowed me the protection that I need to to be able to bring this information to people and and what tomorrow holds you know i i trust i trust whatever god gives me because i've i've seen too much i I know too much and um i think it's going to come to the point tim that even like where i've been able to use the internet and 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 broadcast like through you to talk about this kind of thing that we're we're going to experience in the next probably couple of years where everything is going to be monitored and kept uh, at bay, mm-hmm. so there will there will actually come a time when people like myself will not be allowed the voice, and it will be actually stopped. You know, I I, I hate it that it's going to be that way, but it, it's going to ha- it's going to happen because I even explain how the technology is already here to do that in my book Eden. Yeah, and um, I I just pray that the people who do hear that if anything, you take what I've given you and you expound upon it and you you make up your mind because. You know, I can, I can take you to the water. I can't make you drink, but I can take you to the water, and hopefully you can see some of the things that I'm seeing and then be able to say to yourself, am I where I need to be if this does come to pass? Now, as far as somebody going out and trying to kill the Antichrist, the Bible tells you that he's going to live. You know, as far as me being a threat to them, as, me, as far as me hurting him, there's no, I would never do that because that's not what a Christian is supposed to do. But to be a watchman and tell you that I have this research and to keep it to myself and not share it, then I feel like blood would be on my hands. But if I share it, then I don't have the blood. I've given you the information that I feel like that God has given me throughout the course of my life, that I've come to terms with this, that I have to t- come to terms with the fact that I am a living spiritual being and that that spiritual being never dies but that that spiritual being will brought, be brought into a judgment of accountability, no different than my ancestors, Adam and Eve, were brought into their accountability. Fair enough. Sounds good. Where can folks pick up a copy of Eden, The Knowledge of Good and Evil 666? Well, the quickest way is to go to my website, drjoy, D-R-J-O-Y-E dot com, and there are links there to uh, to be able to pick it up, but it's available like at Barnes & Nobles, Amazon.com, just wherever books are sold online. You can just, you know, pick up one there. If not, you can go to your local bookstore. If they don't have it, they can sure order it. it you know, it's, it's distributed through Ingram Spring Arbor Books. And also, before I go, Tim, yeah. my niece CD is out before time stops, and I have 12 original songs that I wrote and performed. It was given a contract through uh, TMG to uh, be able to uh, sing. And, and I play all the instruments on the on the tape as well as sing. So oh, wow. uh, it's totally Dr. Joy, and it's called Before Time Stops. And, and you can listen to a couple of segments of the songs there on um, drjoy.com as well. Sounds so I hope good. you'll pick up one of those. Awesome, awesome. Well, Dr. Joy, thank you very much for coming on the show. We really just... 
barely scratched the surface of what can be found in Eden, the knowledge of good and evil 666. I kind of wanted you to lay out the beginning and the end, and we'll let folks dig into the book and, uh, you know, feast upon the middle, because as I said, I wanted to make sure we sort of got all the high points in there so they know what to expect and uh, how you sort of came to these conclusions. Very compelling stuff, very thought-provoking stuff. Definitely gives people something to look for here as the days, weeks, months, years go by heading into 2012 and beyond. Very uh, interesting research. I enjoyed it quite a bit, and I'm sure the listeners will uh, very much enjoy it as well. I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. I wish you the best of luck in your research. Thanks again for coming on the show. Well, listen, Tim, I enjoyed it, and I hope that maybe later on uh, at the end of the year or something you'll have me back to talk a little bit more about things as they come to pass. Absolutely. And that does it for this week's edition of BOA Audio Season 5. Big, big, super huge thanks to Dr. Joy Pugh for coming on the show. You can find out more from her at the website, www.drjoy.com. Let me spell that out for you, D-R-J-O-Y-E.com, drjoy.com. Check it out. Moving right along now, it's time for BOA Audio listener feedback. We're going to do something a little bit different this week. I've plumbed the depths of my Facebook account to respond to some of the postings on my Facebook wall and Facebook messages because the folks who get in touch with me via Facebook have yet to receive some love here on BOA Audio listener feedback. So let's take care of these fine folks. We've got three messages, and I will uh, start at the first one here. It comes from John in Ocala, Florida, and here's what he has to say. I found you and your website about a year ago and have spent hours upon hours listening to the past interviews from the last five years. It has been time well spent, me in my office, sitting in one chair, with my feet up, taking it all in. Keep up the good work, and I'll keep reading and listening. John in Ocala, Florida. No real response to that. Just want to say thanks to John for posting the message. I appreciate that. Sounds like you are already well-versed in the BOA Audio Archive page, but feel free to dig around in there. There may be a few more episodes that you have yet to hear. Next message comes from Judy, no hometown listed. Here's what she has to say. I love your interviews. I'm playing catch-up on the five years, too. Keep up the great job, and by the way, your voice is wonderful. Question, have you ever done a stint on Coast to Coast? Would you ever fill in for George or Ian? I think that would be awesomer. Signed, Judy, no hometown listed. First of all, thanks for writing in, Judy. Enjoy the BOA Audio Archive page. Lots of great stuff in there for you to catch up on. Regarding your question, unfortunately, no, I have never done a stint on Coast to Coast. I would definitely be interested in filling in some time, although, as we've established here at the end of the show in BOA Audio listener feedback and for people who have listened to the Lost Cast, I do have a bit of a potty mouth, so I don't know if I would really translate well to the world of FCC overseen live terrestrial radio. That's a little bit of a nerve-wracking situation for me. So maybe if I got a little more seasoning in the world of quote-unquote normal radio, then I could make the transition. But someday in the future, yes, that's definitely something I would be interested in doing. Final message comes from Chris, a.k.a. Casper, and here's what he has to say. Dear Mr. Benal, been digging into the archives and am a new fan. I listen to Howard Stern and a bunch of podcasts on the paranormal. Let me tell you that your show kicks ass. It's a mix of feral on Sirius and UFO not, 
mixed in with some C2C. Keep up the awesome job, and don't stop cussing. It's a laid-back show. That's what's good. If your kid's in the car, don't play it. Simple. Cheers. Chris, a.k.a. Casper. Well, thanks for writing in, Casper. I appreciate your support on the ongoing profanity debate that we've had here at the end of the program. I agree with you that the program is a laid-back show, so there is plenty of swearing that goes on, as I noted at the end of the show a few weeks back. We try to find a balance between swearing too much and not swearing at all, so everybody can listen and everybody can enjoy it. But I appreciate your support for profanity, sir. So thank you for writing in. So there you go. Three folks who got in touch with me via Facebook for this week's edition of BOA Audio Listener Feedback. John in Ocala, Florida, and Judy, as well as Casper. No hometown listed for those two folks. Thank you so much for writing in, guys. If you want to get in touch with me, you can. There's a variety of methods to do it. Write to boaaudio at hotmail.com or just go to binallofamerica.com, B-I-N-N-A-L-L of America.com and click the contact button. Or join up at the official BOA forum, the usofe.com, T-H-E-U-S-O-F-E.com. Place is going to be hopping this weekend as we celebrate the finale of Lost. Always enjoy having new folks join up at the forum. Be sure to check it out. The usofe.com, BOA's Paranormal Playground, the official forum for Banal of America. And if you want to get in touch with me on Facebook or Twitter, just punch in Banal, B-I-N-N-A-L-L, and you will find me on Twitter and Facebook and MySpace as well. We'll try and work some of those correspondences into BOA Audio listener feedback in the future. Up next, of course, is the thanks portion of the show. Allow me to salute the amazing BOA staff, Leslie, Chiron, Regan Lee, Joe V, Tina Senna, Rochelle Hawks, Richard Thomas, A.M. Murphy, Marla Pena, our contributing cartoonist, Andy Carolin, and our webmaster, Jeremy Boston. BOA 2.0 is coming, my friends, I promise. Keep an eye on that at BOA in the not-too-distant future. Lots of great stuff from the BOA columnists as well at the website, and we're going to have a little stop and chat with BOA's Richard Thomas on an upcoming edition here of BOA Audio at the end of the program, so keep your ears peeled for that as well. We say it week in and week out, it is the truth, my friends. If you're only listening to BOA Audio and you're not reading the columns at Ben All of America, you're only getting half of the story. BOA, make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. Long-time listeners of the program know what comes next. It's time for me to come at you with my hat held out and ask for donations to the program and the website. I've gotten a lot of correspondence from people who are pushing hard for me to hurry up and get the P.O. Box established. I will do that soon, have plans to have it taken care of this week. So hopefully by the next time you hear me, we'll have the P.O. Box set up so folks can do their mail-in donations. But until then, we still are, of course, accepting donations via PayPal. How do you do that? That's simple. Go to Banal of America. You'll see the PayPal button right there, front and center on the website. Or just go to the BOA Audio Archive page. You'll see it there as well. Click that. PayPal will walk you through the process. No donation is too small, and all donations go towards Banal of America and BOA Audio to help keep the website and the podcast up and running 
freely available and commercial free for all of our listeners and readers the world over. Next week on the program, I teased here at the beginning of this week's episode that folks who are fans of the BOA Audio Lostcast are in for a real treat next week because we're sort of, I guess you could say, taking the week off and away from BOA Audio, the pure esoteric stylings, so we can wrap up the BOA Audio spinoff series here known as the Lostcast. We are planning and hoping for a massive edition of the Lost Cast to close the book on the series, so it would be pretty much crippling for me to try and take on both that and a BOA Audio Pure episode next week, so we are going to merge the podcasting timelines and have BOA Audio Season 5 essentially absorb the Lost Cast next week for the Lost Cast finale. I guess you could say it is our form of course correction. And in the final episode, we are going to bring back as many of the previous guests from the Lost Cast as we can. Bruce Rux, Jeff Ritzman, Jason Offit, Karen Dolan, and the USOV.com's Red Sun Superman. We're going to wrangle them all as best we can, bring them back on the show to give us their thoughts on the final episode of Lost and how it all played out. Plus, we're going to look back at the Lost Cast and have some laughs and some memories about this goofy-ass program that Jeremy Bainey and I have helmed for the last three months. It is going to be a lot of fun. I know a lot of folks out there probably don't watch Lost or are going to get into it someday and don't want to listen to the Lost cast because we'll spoil the entire final season for you. I totally understand those folks out there who are not going to listen to next week's edition of BOA Audio Season 5. I assure you we'll be back with a pure esoteric episode The following week, we're going to bring back Jason Offit to discuss his latest book, What Lurks Beyond. Jason traveled 100 miles around his hometown where he lives to survey, if you will, all the various weird paranormal stuff that goes on in your own backyard. And it is really cool. He covers tons of different stuff, ghost stories, black-eyed kids, UFO events, strange shadow people happenings, all kinds of weird paranormal stuff. It is going to be quite a fun addition to the program. Perfect episode to really kick off the summer season. Bring us to your campfire and uh, turn up the volume because we're going to have some spooky stories for you and some fun stories as well with Jason Offit. That's in two weeks on BOA Audio. Next week, the BOA Audio Lost Cast Finale. And on that note, we close the book on another edition of BOA Audio Season 5. Big thanks to Dr. Joy Pugh once again for coming on the show. Check out our website, drjoy.com. Big thanks to the three folks from Facebook who wrote in and were featured in BOA Audio listener feedback. And, of course, above all else, big, big, super huge thanks to all you great folks out there, the BOA Audio listeners. I lavish you with praise at the end of every show. But I do it because if not for you guys, there would be no show. You are quite simply amazing, my friends. Thank you so much for making BOA Audio a part of your esoteric audio playlist. Until next time, this is Tim Banal, thanking you for listening and signing off.